Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for the Saturday, January 1st, 2022 reading of the Denver Post. My name is Doug Crane. Today we will be reading from the following main articles. Officials, 1,000 homes may have been lost. Two reported missing fire under control by Jessica Seaman, Elizabeth Hernandez, Saja Hindi, and John Aguilar, the Denver Post. Insurance providers want evacuees to call ASAP by Aldo Sfaldi, the Denver Post. Hospital beds down since summer, but about half of drop is only on paper, by Meg Wingerter, the Denver Post. Marijuana, Governor Pardons 1,351 convicted of possession, by Lee Schmelzer, the Denver Post. And following up with other miscellaneous articles. Officials, 1,000 homes may have been lost, two reported missing, fire under control by Jessica Seaman, Elizabeth Hernandez, Saja Hinti, and John Aguilar, the Denver Post. On the last day of 2021, a year that dealt Boulder County a tragic mass shooting in the midst of ongoing pandemic woes, thousands of residents who had evacuated Superior and Louisville waited before a looming snowstorm to learn whether a wildfire had engulfed their homes. Pushed due east by 100-mile-per-hour winds, the Marshall Fire sparked late Thursday morning south of Boulder, burning across 6,000 acres that afternoon and evening, destroying as many as 1,000 homes and businesses in Superior and Louisville. The winter wildfire, which exploded amid bone-dry conditions fueled by climate warming, quickly became the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history. In the daylight, after a night of fire wreckage, gray snow clouds mixed with smoke and overwhelming fumes hung over the suburban Boulder County neighborhoods. The random path of destruction was stark, as subdivisions like Coal Creek Ranch resembled scenes from disaster movies, with the smoldering debris of one house sitting next to a perfectly intact home. Along McCaslin Boulevard in Louisville, a Subway sandwich shop and an at-the-beach tanning salon were among the retail outlets scorched when the wind-driven flames reached one of the city's strip malls. An entire hotel in Superior was swallowed by the flames. It's absolutely crazy and heart-wrenching and hard to believe anything like this could ever happen, said Andrew Muckle, a physician who has lived in Superior for 25 years and has served as mayor. His home survived, but so many didn't. During a news conference Friday morning, Governor Jared Polis and Boulder County Sheriff Joe Pell estimated up to 1,000 homes in Superior and Louisville may have been destroyed as the roaring wildfire decimated entire subdivisions with shocking speed. Colorado's most destructive fire, in terms of property damage, previously had been 2013's Black Forest Fire near Colorado Springs, which had destroyed 489 homes. But KUSA reported late Friday that the sheriff's office said two people have been reported missing. One of them is 91-year-old Nadine Turnbull, whose home burned down in Old Town Superior, the TV station reported. No information was available at press time about the other missing person. Officials on Thursday evening estimated at least 500 homes in Superior were burned by the wildfire, 
but Polis and Pell acknowledged in Friday's briefing that the number likely will rise significantly with numerous losses in Louisville. I would estimate it's going to be at least 500, Pell said. I would not be surprised if it's 1,000. Officials said there were 1,778 homes within the burn area with a total value of $825 million, but not all of them were destroyed or even damaged, and it may be another day or so before a final tally is complete. Although not officially contained, officials said they do not expect the fire to grow or cause more significant damage, but some burned homes and buildings continued to smolder with smoke and lapping flames Friday, even as snow began to fall. There are still areas burning inside the fire zone, around homes and shrubbery, but we're not expecting to see any growth of the fire, Pell said. I think we're pretty well contained. As the fire was still burning, Pell and other authorities advised residents and people wanting to volunteer to not return to their homes. The Colorado National Guard and police officials blocked entrances to multiple roads and neighborhood entrances, signaling for worried drivers wondering whether their homes were still standing to turn around. The snow's arrival to the Front Range on Friday was expected to help authorities' efforts to snuff the remaining fire. However, climate scientists were unsure how much relief the snow ultimately will provide, given the increasing drought and warm temperatures the Denver area has faced this fall. The conditions, which have become more common because of climate change, provided all of the ingredients needed to spark a wildfire, they said. That's made for a quite extreme climate, said Becky Bollinger, assistant state climatologist at the Colorado Climate Center at Colorado State University. We don't experience that often. Cause still under investigation. Officials said Thursday they believed the Marshall Fire likely was sparked by power lines down by the high winds. However, the Boulder Office of Emergency Management said Friday that Excel Energy inspected all of its power lines in the ignition area and found none that were down, according to a news update. The utility did locate some compromised communication lines that people may have misidentified as power lines, Boulder emergency officials said. Telephone, cable, and Internet lines generally don't start fires, officials said. The investigation into the fire's cause continues, emergency officials said. Overnight, local authorities lifted all evacuation orders and pre-evacuation warnings for residents outside of Boulder County, including those in Broomfield, Westminster, and Arvada. Friday afternoon, they lifted evacuation orders for part of Superior, including south of Colton Road between Colorado 128 and Rock Creek Parkway and the Bell Flatirons Apartments. Polis flew over the site of the Marshall Fire on Friday morning. Video from the flight showed smoke rising from the rubble that used to be homes. Whole streets of homes largely were wiped out, with only a few houses still standing. This was a rapid fire over a period of hours, with gusts of up to 105 miles per hour leapfrogging instantly over highways, over roads, across neighborhoods, Polis said. The governor spoke with President Joe Biden on Friday morning, saying he gave verbal authorization for a major disaster declaration, which will mean homeowners and small business owners won't have to wait for a preliminary damage assessment for assistance, Polis said. Why me? Kent Crawford, 75, was working from his townhome in the ridge at Superior Development Thursday afternoon, his fireplace roaring with the cable news on in the background. 
His son, who lives in California and had seen news of the fires on Twitter, called Crawford and said, Dad, you have to get out right now. There are fires. Crawford looked out his window, one of the highest points in Superior, he said, and said emergency vehicles had just pulled up to evacuate his complex. He fled, taking nothing with him but the sweatpants he wore and a jacket. He drove around the city, trying to find a safe place to hunker down and ride it out, but instead watched flames engulf building after building, home after home. It was like a bombed-out war zone, Crawford said. The sun was obscured by the smoke, the smell. It was surreal. Crawford stayed up all night and was walking around Harper Lake on Friday to pass the time. Police were still blocking the route to his home, but he had seen his complex still standing on the morning news. When I found out my place was okay, I got upset, Crawford said. Why me? I was guilty. Taking shelter, waiting for news. The YMCA of Northern Colorado and Lafayette, a Red Cross evacuation center, was packed Friday morning as evacuees took shelter, waiting to learn if their homes were standing. Volunteers brought and served food and handed out toiletries, blankets, and other supplies. Chaplains talked with people, mental health counselors connected with visitors, and nurses provided assistance to anyone who needed it. Veronica Lavras, 72, worried about if anything remained of her home of 11 years in her senior living apartment in Louisville. The emotions overpowered her as she prayed with the chaplains at the shelter. When the evacuation order was issued, Labras packed an extra shirt, pajamas, and some nuts to snack on. She wasn't able to grab her plants or any sentimental items in her small bag. Because she doesn't have a car, she wasn't sure how she would even leave, often relying on public transportation. Ultimately, she said the housing authority sent a bus to take her and other neighbors to the Lafayette shelter. She was trying to remain positive Friday morning and said, when it started snowing, I felt so relieved. A challenge that is unparalleled. Former Louisville Mayor Chuck Sisk, informally known as Mr. Louisville for his long service on the city council and his larger-than-life presence in this city east of Boulder, was one of the lucky ones. His house in the Mesa Point neighborhood survived the Marshall Fire, but his son's home in original Old Town Superior didn't. I talked to my son, and he said to me, I'm homeless, Dad. I'm homeless, Sisk said Friday. How would you envision something like this happening? This is a catastrophe for so many families. Sisk, 76, returned to his home Friday night, but is ready to open his door to his son, who was in South Dakota when the fire raced through Superior. We'll make room, he said. Meanwhile, for the residents he represented for 20 years on the council, eight of them as mayor, he hopes the city will be kind. That means reducing red tape to a minimum when it comes time to rebuild. Forgiveness of fees and an expediting of permits will be necessary to make the process for those aiming to reclaim their lives as painless as possible. That's the least we can do at this stage, Sisk said. This is a challenge that is unparalleled, but I'm confident we'll be up to the challenge. I've got a lot of faith in Louisville, in our resiliency and esprit de corps. Insurance providers want evacuees to call ASAP by Aldous Faldi, the Denver Post. About 30,000 people evacuated because of the Marshall Fire in Boulder County, and although a final tally isn't completed, around 1,000 homes might have been lost to the fast-moving wildfire, with an undetermined number damaged in what is the state's most costly wildfire in terms of property damage. 
What anyone directly impacted by the fire should do, if they have coverage, is reach out to their insurance provider or agent as soon as possible, letting them know where they are staying and what they need help with, advised Carol Walker, executive director of the Rocky Mountain Insurance Information Association. Most homeowner and tenant policies cover what are known as additional living expenses when someone is forced out of their homes. Most work by reimbursement, making it important to keep all the receipts where expenses incurred, but cash can be provided quickly, Walker said. The cost of a hotel room, meals at a restaurant, the expense of buying new clothes for those who fled with only what they were wearing are the kinds of expenses covered. Stays with friends, families, and good Samaritans who don't charge aren't reimbursable. An expense must be out of pocket, and there must be a record of it. Agents also can help customers locate longer-term housing when that is required. Given how tight both the apartment and housing markets are right now in Metro Denver and Boulder, Walker said those who won't be able to return to their homes should try to lock down a new living arrangement as soon as possible. As emergency crews move out, insurance companies will bring in large numbers of workers from across the country to review the damage and handle claims. We are mobilizing our state farm catastrophe response teams all across the affected areas. We also have thousands of employees handling claims across the country in our centralized operations, said Michael Brower, a public affairs specialist with the state's largest insurance provider. Because of the ongoing pandemic, which hit a new record for daily cases in Colorado on the same day as the fire, many insurance companies try to handle as much as they can virtually. State Farm encourages customers to take advantage of potential options for virtual inspections or other methods that do not always require a personal inspection with their claims professional, Brower said. The Colorado Division of Insurance has set up a hotline to help answer insurance questions like how to obtain a carrier's contact information or how to file a claim. The Consumer Service Team can be reached at 303-894-7490 or 1-800-930-3745 for those outside the metro area or online at doi.colorado.gov. This is a large disaster, and the impact to many people will be felt for months. The division expects insurance companies to honor the promises they have made to Coloradans and provide whatever assistance is possible, said Insurance Commissioner Michael Conway in a news release. We will be ensuring that insurance companies do all they can to help people. A major problem after catastrophic events, such as the Marshall Fire, is that policyholders, usually two out of the three, find themselves underinsured and unable to fully restore what they have lost, said Amy Bach, executive director of United Policyholders, a consumer advocacy group based in San Francisco that also provides a roadmap to recovery for those impacted by disasters. Sometimes the shortfall reflects decisions consumers made on the front end in obtaining a policy, wittingly or unwittingly. Another reason, though, is that new construction and repair costs tend to shoot up sharply after a major disaster. Contractors are in short supply, materials can be harder to obtain, and delays can keep households renting for months longer than planned. That pattern has played out over and over again, but the industry has yet to price those added costs into the claims models, Bach said. 
In one example, a policyholder the group helped was offered $200 a square foot when replacement costs were actually closer to $400 a square foot. Give your insurance company a chance to do the right thing, but don't be a pushover, Bach advised. Have your eyes open. Your insurance provider is not a government entity, and they are not social workers. They are business people. This is really about dollars and cents. Consumers should be proactive in the claims process and not just passively accept what an insurance provider offers, Bach advised. But they shouldn't go in with the boxing gloves on from the start. People handling claims are human, too, and don't respond well to rudeness and hostility. And they have varying levels of experience and expertise. Although losing a home is emotional, the claims process is transactional, Bach said, adding anyone who had their lives upended and their homes destroyed on Thursday should expect that the process will take longer and require more effort than they ever imagined. Hospital beds down since summer, but about half of drop is only on paper. By Meg Wingerter, The Denver Post. Colorado has fewer hospital beds heading into the expected Omicron surge than it did at the end of the summer, but close to half of the 2,400-bed deficit exists only on paper after the state changed how it counts resources. The state's hospitals have been running close to capacity for months, with 90% of beds in intensive care units filled since late September and 90% of general beds listed as full since late October. Although fewer people are hospitalized with COVID-19 than were during the fall 2020 surge, fewer beds are available to accommodate them and people seeking care for accidents, strokes, or other medical needs. Normally, about 80% of intensive care beds and from 60 to 80% of general beds are being used, Colorado Hospital Association spokeswoman Kara Welch said. Hospitals don't build a great deal of extra capacity, especially in intensive care units, which requires significant resources for each bed, she said. As of Tuesday afternoon, 456 general beds and 104 beds in intensive care units were empty in Colorado. Most current patients don't have COVID-19, but the virus still reduces the amount of cushion hospitals have left. In late August, Colorado had almost 9,600 total general care beds in hospitals statewide. The numbers fluctuate day to day based on how many people are available to care for patients, but about 7,400 beds were in use or available on an average day in late December. About half of that drop happened from December 5th through December 7th when the state changed how it counts beds and about 1,100 appeared to vanish. Before then, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment listed specialized beds, such as those used for labor and delivery or psychiatric care, as general beds. In a pinch, at least some of those beds could be used to care for patients with COVID-19 or other emergencies, but hospitals largely haven't done that, Welch said. They weren't being used that way, and the state wanted a more accurate count, she said. The rest of the drop in general beds is real and largely reflects difficulty in finding enough trained people to care for patients, Welch said. The state didn't change how it counts intensive care beds, so the drop from about 1,700 in late August to about 1,500 in late December represents a change in capacity to care for patients. Some of those lost ICU beds originally may have been general beds that were converted temporarily to intensive care use, Welch said. 
although hospitals may have the space and equipment to convert general use beds for intensive care patients it's more difficult to find respiratory therapists and nurses with the training to care for the sickest patients if they don't have the staff for those beds they can't add that additional icu capacity welch said there's no advantage for hospitals not to open every bed they can safely staff a bed that doesn't have a patient in it isn't making any money reopening field hospitals like one that was never used at the denver convention center wouldn't necessarily help unless the state can find an untapped source of trained people to work in them covid 19 cases are rising again in colorado and it's not clear how many hospital beds could be needed in the near future given the omicron variant appears to cause fewer serious illnesses although it's not clear how much of that advantage reflects vaccinated people getting mild cases than the previously dominant Delta variant. The state still is under crisis standards of care that give hospitals legal cover if they have to stretch their staff in less than ideal ways, such as having nurses who don't normally work in intensive care help out in ICUs under a more experienced supervisor. In February 2020, before the pandemic hit, Colorado hospitals employed 61,100 people, according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. In 2021, monthly employment numbers have bounced between 58,000 and 59,000. That's a slightly higher percentage drop than the national average, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation's Health System Tracker. The data doesn't specify how many of those who left provided direct patient care, though. Colleen Casper, Director of Practice and Government Affairs for the Colorado Nurses Association, said she continues to hear from members that nurses are resigning in significant numbers, including relatively new ones who finished their initial two-year contracts. A survey this year found nurses who wanted to leave the profession most often cited insufficient staffing or that work was taking a toll on their health. Nurses are having to care for more patients than they did pre-pandemic, and while there are incentives to take more shifts, hospitals haven't done enough to give nurses a voice or a reason to stay, Casper said. Even new graduates who are two to three weeks off orientation are already speaking about leaving nursing, she said. Marijuana. Governor pardons 1,351 convicted of possession. By Lee Schmelzer, The Denver Post. More than 1,300 people convicted of possession of less than two ounces of marijuana will have their criminal records cleared after Governor Jared Polis announced Thursday he would issue a mass pardon. Polis previously pardoned those convicted of possession of less than one ounce of marijuana, but lawmakers in 2021 raised the legal possession limit of marijuana from one to two ounces. Those receiving the pardons did not need to apply and do not need to act further to clear their criminal record. Adults can legally possess marijuana in Colorado just as they can beer or wine, Polis said in a news release announcing the pardons. It's unfair that 1,351 additional Coloradans had permanent blemishes on their record that interfered with employment, credit, and gun ownership, but today we have fixed that by pardoning their possession of small amounts of marijuana that occurred during the failed Prohibition era. Polis noted in his letter issuing the pardon that many low-level marijuana possession charges are filed as municipal offenses which he does not have the authority to pardon. He urged municipalities to make changes allowing people with such charges to clear their records. 
Polis also pardoned 15 people convicted of other crimes who served their sentences for crimes, including burglary, assault, and arson. He reduced the sentences for three incarcerated men after reviewing their cases. Glenwood Springs' mom held in deaths of two daughters by the Post-Independent. An 11-year-old girl and an 18-year-old woman died as a result of their wounds from a stabbing Thursday afternoon, Glenwood Springs police said Friday morning, and their 37-year-old mother is facing two counts of first-degree murder. The victim's mother, Claudia Camacho Duenas, was detained without incident at the scene. State agents arrived Thursday afternoon after the two were violently assaulted at an apartment complex. Camacho Duenas was charged with two counts of first-degree murder of a family member, according to Garfield County court records. The victims were transported to the hospital with severe injuries and later died. I-70 corridor motorists hit four patrol vehicles in mountains by the Vale Daily. When State Trooper Jacob Best's cruiser was sideswiped Sunday during the snowstorm on the I-70 mountain corridor, that was the least of the damage. Not 30 seconds after that, a vehicle in the right lane lost control and came into the scene and rear-ended my vehicle, which almost struck another trooper who was on foot, Best said. It was one of four separate incidents, two on Sunday and two on Monday, in which state patrol vehicles were struck by motorists on the I-70 mountain corridor between the Eisenhower Tunnel and Glenwood Springs this week. Two patrol officers have had minor injuries. We're just asking for everyone's patience and to slow down and drive with due regard so everyone gets to their destination safely, Best said. Best said the vehicle that sideswiped his patrol cruiser was being driven by an Eagle County resident. The tires on the vehicle were completely bald, he said. Sometimes the visitors are blamed for these closures or spun-out vehicles, but to be frankly honest, the majority of violators that we are dealing with are Colorado residents, Best said. Marshall Fire. Officials, those in area should boil water. By Jessica Seaman, the Denver Post. Residents in Louisville and Superior should boil their water or use bottled water for drinking and other uses as the water supplies in their communities were used to help combat the rapidly moving Marshall Fire. People should use boiled or bottled water for drinking, making ice, brushing teeth, washing dishes, and food preparation until otherwise told, according to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Louisville and Superior remained under an evacuation order Friday because of the Marshall Fire. The boil water advisory for Louisville was issued because the city switched to untreated water when it changed its water distribution to free up more water for battling the fires, which destroyed hundreds of homes and forced tens of thousands of people to flee Boulder County. In Superior, water pressure was lost in the town's system as emergency authorities used water to extinguish the fire. Such pressure loss can let organisms that cause diseases into the water distribution system. There are also leaks in the system because of the destruction caused by the fire that local officials are working to plug, according to a news release. Water should be boiled for three minutes and cooled before using. People can take a shower in water that has not been boiled, according to the news release. Wildland Urban Interface Scientists, Dryer Climate, Population Boom Collide, by Jessica Seaman, The Denver Post. 
Betty Bollinger and the team at the Colorado Climate Center have kept watch over the dry and warm conditions that have blanketed the Front Range since the summer, knowing that they provided the perfect recipe for a wildfire. For them, it was a matter of when and where a fire would spark, not if one would happen, said Bollinger, the, the assistant state climatologist at the center at the Colorado State University. Still, Bollinger and other scientists who spoke to the Denver Post were surprised by the location of the windswept Marshall Fire that rapidly spread through Boulder County on Thursday. Instead of mountain forests, the flames spread through suburban neighborhoods and forced tens of thousands of Coloradans from their homes as the state's burgeoning population collided with climate change. I have thought it won't be long before we start experiencing fires like California where flames chase people out of their neighborhoods, Bollinger said. I didn't expect that it would happen in December. High winds are common in Colorado, and even brush fires are known to happen in Boulder in December, although they aren't common. The Marshall Fire, which spread to more than 6,000 acres in a matter of hours, is unique in its intensity and how it struck grassland, now filled with thousands of homes that has been drying out for months, climate scientists said. The grass grew tall, remnants of a wet spring, and began drying out in the summer amid a decades-long drought. Making matters worse, the period between June and December has been the warmest period on record and among one of the driest periods for the Denver area since the early 1960s, said Jennifer Botch, a fire scientist and director of the Earth Lab at the University of Colorado. The drier the kindling is, the more easily that fire is going to spread, Bollinger said. A warming climate laid the foundation for wildfires to happen year-round instead of just in the summer, and that needs to be taken into consideration as more homes are built, the scientists said. Climate change is definitely a part of this story in that fire seasons are longer, Bolt said. We don't have a season any longer. We are now looking at year-long fires. The Marshall Fire also has made scientists realize that the wildland-urban interface, where developments meet natural land, is larger than they knew, Bolt said. There's now much more development for a fire to affect, said Bob Henson, a meteorologist and writer for Yale Climate Connections. Many of the areas hit were grassland 40 years ago. The snow hitting the front range on Friday and Saturday will help, but if the days go back to being warm, dry, and windy after the storm, that relief may not last, Bollinger said. The memory of this snow could be short, and it could evaporate and leave the ground quickly, and then we could be at risk again, she said. Marshall Fire. People turn to Facebook to find lost pets. By Kieran Nicholson. The Denver Post. The 6,000-acre Marshall Fire in Boulder County, which destroyed hundreds of homes and forced about 30,000 people to evacuate, caused chaos and trauma for hundreds of pets and livestock as well. By Friday morning, the day after the destructive Wind Whip wildfire, more than 12,000 people have joined the Facebook group Boulder County Fire Lost and Found Pets. On Thursday, as people fled flames and smoke, and as the fire spread from home to home, an animal evacuation shelter at the Boulder County Fairgrounds in Longmont filled to capacity. A backup, additional evacuation center, was set up at the Jefferson County Fairgrounds. The Facebook page includes descriptions and photos of lost pets, mostly cats and dogs, along with messages from concerned owners and contact information for people who may have come across stray animals. 
Some people on the page inquire about volunteering to search for pets. Many of the people who lost pets had to flee for their lives. The Harrington family, who live on Muirfield Circle in Louisville, scrambled when authorities banged on the front door as flames raced toward their home. Their beloved eight-year-old Boston Terrier mix, Violet, is missing. We have two little kids. Houses were burning on our street, and we just bolted. Jason Harrington said, "We don't know if she ran outside or was cowering somewhere." Friday morning, the Harringtons were told that their home was gone—a total loss. The neighborhood is gone, Harrington said. We don't have a home to go back to, but we're glad we got out with the kids. Now, with some help, they'd like to find Violet, who has a microchip. She's part of our family, Harrington said. For now, authorities and pet advocates urge the public to avoid the fire areas and to not enter spaces that are cordoned off. Missing pets have suffered trauma, and people who approach the animals should be cautious and take great care for the animal and themselves. At the Jefferson County Fairgrounds, county workers and volunteers took in 61 horses Thursday night that were dropped off by people who fled the fire. We got busy last night," said Christine Padilla, a supervisor with the sheriff's office animal control division, and we've been busy all day today. Most of the horses checked in under emergency circumstances are now being checked out," Padilla said. Most people are coming in to get their horses. Volunteers, mostly with the Jefferson County Horse Council, help with the emergency response and setup," Padilla said. We appreciate all the people who were helping," Padilla said. "We all come together when we have emergencies." Louisville Hospital remains closed due to smoke damage, by Karen Nicholson, the Denver Post. A hospital in Louisville evacuated because of the Marshall Fire sustained extensive smoke damage, and the facility will be closed for the foreseeable future, hospital officials said Friday. The campus of Avista Adventist Hospital did not sustain direct fire damage, according to a news release. On Thursday, hospital workers fought back flames with water hoses, keeping the fire away from highly flammable oxygen tanks on the west side of the building, avoiding what could have been a catastrophic explosion. The hospital is without natural gas and is using diesel power generators to run the boiler and heat systems. The high winds were driving the fire straight toward our hospital on the north side. So to return hours later and find no significant damage is truly a miracle," said Isaac Sendros, hospital CEO, in the release. We are eternally grateful and thankful to the first responders who responded with urgency and have tirelessly worked since the fire first erupted in our community. At about 4:15 Thursday, the hospital was fully evacuated as the damaging fire came dangerously close. All patients were transferred to two sister facilities within the Centura Health Network, Longmont United Hospital and St. Anthony North. Crews were at Avista on Friday, cleaning the smoke damage and assessing measures to reopen the facility. Studies suggest why Omicron is less severe. It spares the lungs. By Carl Zimmer and Azin Goyashi, the New York Times. A spate of new studies on lab animals and human tissues are providing a possible explanation of why the Omicron variant causes a milder disease than previous versions of the coronavirus. In studies on mice and hamsters, Omicron produced less damaging infections, often limited largely to the upper airway, the nose, throat, and windpipe. The variant did much less harm to the lungs, where previous variants often would cause scarring and serious breathing difficulty. 
It's fair to say that the idea of a disease that manifests itself primarily in the upper respiratory system is emerging, said Roland Isles, a computational biologist at the Berlin Institute of Health who has studied how coronaviruses infect the airway. In November, when the first report on the Omicron variant came out of South Africa, scientists could only guess at how it might behave differently from earlier forms of the virus. All they knew was that it had a distinctive and alarming combination of more than 50 genetic mutations. Previous research had shown that some of these mutations enabled coronaviruses to grab onto cells more tightly. Others allowed the virus to evade antibodies, which serve as an early line of defense against infection. But how the new variant might behave inside of the body was a mystery. You can't predict the behavior of virus just from the mutations, said Ravinda Gupta, a virus expert at the University of Cambridge. In the past month, more than a dozen research groups, including Gupta's, have been observing the new pathogen in the lab, infecting cells in Petri dishes with Omicron and spraying the virus into the noses of animals. As they worked, Omicron surged across the planet, readily infecting even people who were vaccinated or had recovered from infections. But as cases skyrocketed, hospitalizations increased only modestly. Early studies of patients suggested that Omicron was less likely to cause severe illness than other variants, especially in vaccinated people. Still, those findings came with a lot of caveats. For one thing, the bulk of early Omicron infections were in young people who are less likely to get seriously ill with all versions of the virus, and many of those early cases were happening in people with some immunity from previous infections or vaccines. It was unclear whether Omicron also would prove less severe in an unvaccinated older person, for example. Experiments on animals can help clear up these ambiguities because scientists can test Omicron on identical animals living in identical conditions. More than a half dozen experiments made public in recent days all pointed to the same conclusion. Omicron is milder than Delta and other earlier versions of the virus. On Wednesday, a large consortium of Japanese and American scientists released a report on hamsters and mice that had been infected with Omicron or one of several earlier variants. Those infected with Omicron had less lung damage, lost less weight, and were less likely to die, the study found. Although the animals infected with Omicron, on average, experienced much milder symptoms, the scientists were particularly struck by the results in Syrian hamsters, a species known to get severely ill with all previous versions of the virus. This was surprising, since every other variant had robustly infected these hamsters, said Dr. Michael Diamond, a virus expert at Washington University and a co-author of the study. Several other studies on mice and hamsters have reached the same conclusion. Like most urgent Omicron research, these studies have been posted online but have not been published in scientific journals. The reason that Omicron is milder may be a matter of anatomy. Diamond and his colleagues found that the level of Omicron in the noses of the hamsters was the same as in animals infected with an earlier form of the coronavirus. But Omicron levels in the lungs were one-tenth or less of the level of other variants. 
A similar finding came from researchers at the University of Hong Kong who studied bits of tissue taken from human airways during surgery. In 12 lung samples, the researchers found that Omicron grew more slowly than Delta and other variants did. The researchers also infected tissue from the bronchi, the tubes in the upper chest that deliver air from the windpipe to the lungs. And inside of those bronchial cells, in the first two days after an infection, Omicron grew faster than Delta or the original coronavirus did. These findings will have to be followed up with further studies, such as experiments with monkeys or examination of the airways of people infected with Omicron. If the results hold up to scrutiny, they might explain why people infected with Omicron seem less likely to be hospitalized than those with Delta. But when the coronavirus reaches the lungs, it can do serious damage. Immune cells in the lungs can overreact, killing off not just infected cells, but uninfected ones. They can produce runaway inflammation, scarring the lungs' delicate walls. What's more, the viruses can escape from the damaged lungs into the bloodstream, triggering clots and ravaging other organs. 2022 Rose Parade birthed Boulder residents to participate. By Kelsey Hammond, the Longmont Times Call. When Beth Beamer was in high school, she spent a night camped out on a sidewalk so she could see the Rose Parade in the morning. I couldn't afford to see it any other way, Beamer said. Equestrian units are one of the categories featured in the iconic New Year's Day Parade. For Beamer, the parade was always a chance to see the horses shine. Now for the second time, Boehmer is riding in the holiday celebration, this time in the 133rd Rose Parade. The parade travels five and a half miles down Colorado Boulevard, featuring floral decorated floats, equestrian units, bands, and more. Boehmer grew up in Southern California and got her first job working with horses when she was 13. Today, she's the owner and trainer at Starfire Farm in Berthoud, where she helps to raise and train Norwegian Fjord horses. She was a Longmont Animal Control Officer and a Boulder Police Officer. Boehmer first rode in the Rose Parade in 2014. It's a really big deal, Boehmer said, her voice thick with emotion. It's an honor to be selected. When you turn down Colorado Boulevard and it just goes straight for five miles and it's loaded with people, it's just crazy. It's an amazing feeling. Boehmer is riding Starfire Giotto, a Norwegian fjord, and is leading four other horses in a five-abreast formation. Boehmer will be joined in the parade by 28-year-old rider Victoria Arling of Boulder. Her parents, Anne and Ed, will assist in the parade as outwalkers. Arling also rode with Boehmer during the 2014 Rose Parade. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to go back again, especially because it didn't happen last year because of COVID, Arling said. It's been a long time coming for this round. Arling said she looks forward to the chance to showcase the horses, meet others in the parade, and participate in an in-person event. In addition to the hundreds of thousands of people who come to see the parade, it is televised worldwide, giving Boehmer and Arling a chance to show the horses to a wider audience. Hopefully, it will get others interested in Norwegian Fjord horses and being able to showcase the versatility and skills they have to offer, Arling said. Boehmer expected to wake up at 4 a.m. today. We will ring in the new year on the end of the 710 freeway, which they shut down to park all the equestrian units overnight, Boehmer said. We will camp out in our trailers with our horses. 
Boehmer also rides horses in the Colorado Horse Expo and the Bertha Day Parade and has performed at the National Western Stock Show and Rodeo. She also continues to help law enforcement. Boehmer trains Starfire Giotto to aid the Boulder County Sheriff's Office with search and rescue operations. She hit the road last week, horses in tow. Boehmer said she most looks forward to the moment when the parade turns down Colorado Avenue with thousands filling the sidewalks to watch. It matters that the people are so happy, she said. To be able to give that gift of happiness to them is really cool. Russia. Foreign minister delivers new warning on Ukraine. By Andrew Kramer, the New York Times. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on Friday warned that the Kremlin perceives the United States and its allies as stoking a war in eastern Ukraine. A shift in tone from Moscow just hours after another Russian official had said the Kremlin was satisfied with a phone call between the leaders of the two countries. The civil war in Ukraine, ongoing for eight years, is far from over, Lavrov said. In remarks carried by the Russian Information Agency, the country's authorities don't intend to resolve the conflict through diplomacy, he added. Unfortunately, we see the United States and other NATO nations supporting the militaristic intentions of Kyiv, provisioning Ukraine with weapons and sending military specialists, Lavrov said. Amid high-stakes diplomatic talks over what the United States has described as a serious Russian military threat to Ukraine, Lavrov's remarks were the latest in a series of conflicting commentary from the Kremlin that has seesawed between ominous and conciliatory, sometimes within the space of a few days. Earlier in December, Russian President Vladimir Putin said Moscow might resort to military technical means, referring to the use of force if talks failed. But after President Joe Biden and Putin spoke for about 50 minutes Thursday, Yuri Ushakov, Putin's foreign policy advisor, declined to say whether a specific threat of military action had come up. Although the call ended without clarity on the Kremlin's intentions after massing about 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, both sides said it had been constructive. The call was seen as an effort by both sides to shape the diplomatic landscape before talks on the Ukraine crisis that will begin in Geneva on January 10th and move to Brussels and Vienna later in the week, according to Russian and American officials who briefed journalists. Russia has issued demands for NATO and the United States to pull back forces in the region and pledge not to admit new Eastern European members to the alliance. In Thursday's call, according to American officials, Biden made clear that Western countries would impose harsh sanctions if Russia increased military activities along the Ukrainian border. Putin warned that imposing new sanctions could lead to a complete rupture in relations. Officials in both countries had assessed Thursday's conversation positively. In principle, we are satisfied with the contact, the negotiations, because they have an open, substantive, concrete character, Ushakov told journalists in a briefing early Friday in Moscow. On Friday, Biden told reporters that the Russian leader had laid out some of his concerns about NATO and the United States and Europe. We laid out ours. Obituary. Betty White, a TV fixture for seven decades, is dead at 99 by Richard Severo and Peter Keepnews, the New York Times. Betty White, who created two of the most memorable characters in sitcom history, the nymphomaniacal Sue Ann Nivens on the Mary Tyler Moore Show and the sweet but dim Rose Nyland on the Golden Girls, 
and who capped her long career with a comeback that included a triumphant appearance as the host of Saturday Night Live at age 88, died Friday. She was 99. White won five Primetime Emmys and one competitive Daytime Emmy, as well as a Lifetime Achievement Daytime Emmy in 2015 and a Los Angeles Regional Emmy in 1952, in a television career that spanned seven decades. But her breakthrough came relatively late in life, with her work on The Mary Tyler Moore Show from 1973 to 1977, for which she won two of her Emmys. As Sue Ann, the host of a Household Hints show on the television station where Moore's character worked, the bedimpled white was annoyingly positive and upbeat, but also manipulative and bawdy. The sex pot next door, the girl who would have you believe she slept with the entire army brigades during World War II. Once, when someone asked her how she was feeling, Sue Ann replied cheerfully, I didn't sleep a wink all night. I feel wonderful. She won another Emmy in 1986 for an entirely different kind of character, the naive, scatterbrained Rose on the Golden Girls, which revolved around the lives of four older women sharing a house in Miami. Whereas Sue Ann knew everything there was to know about getting a man into bed, Rose got to the same place innocently, and by being just a wee bit off-center. White was the last surviving member of the show's four stars, Estelle Getty died in 2008, B. Arthur in 2009, and Rue McClanahan in 2010. White won her final Emmy in 2010 as an outstanding guest actress in a comedy series for hosting the Mother's Day episode of SNL. She followed that appearance with a regular role on another sitcom, Hot in Cleveland, and then with a book contract and her own reality show. She was bigger than she had been in decades, but she didn't see her resurgence as a comeback. I've been working steady for 63 years, she said in an interview for the ABC News program Nightline in 2010. But everybody says, oh, it's such a renaissance. Maybe I went away and didn't know it. White was older than 50 and already a television veteran when she first appeared on the Mary Tyler Moore show. But her work there elevated her career to a new level. A comedy about a young single television news producer in Minneapolis, The Mary Tyler Moore Show was one of the most popular sitcoms of its day or any other. Thanks to smart writing, Moore's charismatic presence, and a high-caliber supporting cast, even in the company of scene-stealing actors such as Moore, Ed Asner, and Valerie Harper, White's Sue Ann stood out. The character, introduced in the show's fourth season, was conceived as cloying, calculating, and predatory, her deviousness always accompanied by a charming smile. The producers wanted a Betty White type to play the role, but they did not immediately ask White because she and Moore were close friends, and the producers were afraid there would be damage to the friendship if she didn't get the role or didn't want it. They went through about 12 people and couldn't find anybody sickening enough, White told Modern Maturity magazine in 1998, so they called me. Betty Marion White was born January 17, 1922, in Oak Park, Illinois, the only child of Horace and Tess White. Her father was an electrical engineer, her mother a homemaker. When Betty was a toddler, the family moved to Los Angeles, where she grew up. At Beverly Hills High School, from which she graduated in 1939, she appeared in several student productions and even wrote her class's graduation play, in which she had the lead role. 
During World War II, she served in the American Women's Voluntary Services and drove a PX truck delivering soap, toothpaste, and candy to soldiers manning the gun emplacements that the government had established in the hills of Santa Monica and Hollywood. She also met and married a P-38 pilot, Dick Barker. That marriage lasted less than a year. When White wrote an autobiography, Here We Go Again, in 1995, she mentioned the marriage but did not mention his name. Toward the end of the war, she became involved in the Bliss Hayden Little Theater, run by two Hollywood character actors, Leela Bliss and Harry Hayden, and designed to give young people a chance to perform in front of an audience. Her first performance there was in Dear Ruth, a comedy about a girl who pretends to be her older sister. It was seen by Lane Allen, an actor turned agent, who encouraged White to pursue an acting career. She and Allen married later, but that union also ended in divorce. White began her radio career by saying one word on the popular comedy The Great Gildersleeve. The word was parquet, the name of the margarine sponsoring the show. That led to bit parts in 1940s radio staples such as Blondie and This Is Your FBI. She broke into television in 1949 on a local talk show called Al Jarvis's Hollywood on Television. When Jarvis left the show, she succeeded him as host. She had a few television shows of her own in the 1950s, including two sitcoms and a variety show, which she produced and on which she drew both praise and criticism for featuring a black tap dancer, Arthur Duncan, as a regular, a highly unusual move for the time. But none of those shows stayed on the air for long, and by the early 1960s, she was best known as a busy freelance guest. Game shows were her specialty. She appeared on To Tell the Truth, I've Got a Secret, The Match Game, What's My Line, and most notably Password, where host Alan Ludden she married in 1963. White and Ludden remained married until his death in 1981. They had no children together, but she helped him raise his three children by a previous marriage, David, Martha, and Sarah. Information on survivors was not available. After the Golden Girls ended its seven-year run in 1992, White remained a familiar and welcome presence on television. She reprised the role of Rose Nyland on a short-lived spin-off, The Golden Palace, and made guest appearances on Alley McBeal, That 70s Show, Boston Legal, Community, and many other series. From 2006 to 2009, she had a recurring role on the daytime soap opera The Bold and the Beautiful. White, who was inducted into the Television Academy Hall of Fame in 1995, continued acting on television well into her 90s. She occasionally showed up on the big screen as well, most recently in The Proposal and You Again. She was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Screen Actors Guild in 2010. In 2018, she was the subject of a PBS documentary, Betty White, First Lady of Television. The title she joked might have meant that she was the first woman ever on television. The most surprising and high-profile role she played in her later years was host of Saturday Night Live in May 2010, a booking that came about largely because of a spirited social media campaign. That same year, she also returned to primetime series television as one of the stars of the TV Land sitcom Hot in Cleveland. Thank you for joining us for the Saturday, January first, twenty twenty-two reading of the Denver Post. My name is Doug Crane.